Welcome to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. I'm Carolyn Jones, publisher of the Boston Business Journal, alongside my co-host, John Bernstein, regional president of PNC Bank. Thanks, Carolyn. Great to be with you on PNC C-Speak. Each podcast features local executives talking about relevant and timely business topics. This knowledge sharing platform showcases leaders with forward thinking approaches that disrupt the status quo and cause us to think differently. Our guest today is Ken Turner, President and CEO of the Massachusetts Life Science Center. Ken, thank you so much for joining Carolyn and me for this episode of PNCC Speak, the language of executives. Absolutely delighted to be here, John, and thank you, Carolyn, for inviting me. Terrific. We look forward to a great conversation, Ken, and I'm so glad that you could join us today. So we'd like to start out by letting our audience have the opportunity to get to know you a little bit. So tell us a little bit about yourself and some of the experiences that have shaped your career trajectory. Well, I think the place to start would be uh, where I'm from. I'm not a native of the Commonwealth. I'm actually a Louisiana boy, born and raised. Went to college at the largest HBCU in the country, Southern University in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Grew up wanting to be a military officer. My father had served in Korea in the Navy, and I'd had uh, four brothers before me uh, that served in the military, three of which were Vietnam vets and one sister as well. So it was kind of the family business, so to speak. And so from the age of 12, I set my sights on the Navy. I wanted to be a Naval officer and a pilot and a test pilot and an astronaut. And I told my dad that when I was 12 years old. And so that was my life's ambition. Uh, I got my commission in uh, 1980 at Southern and went off to the Navy. And I thought that that was kind of the path that I was gonna be on for the rest of my life. And uh, as fate would have it, I went on to become a uh, nuclear weapons submariner. I did indeed serve 26 years in the Navy and retire as a Navy captain. So I did realize my boyhood dream, but with a divergence, which is after about seven years, the Navy did away with my job, so to speak. And so I had to make a choice, uh, a different job in the Navy or do something in the private sector or in government. And so I decided to go into package goods of all things and went to Hallmark Cards, and that began 25 years of private sector experience. I worked for various packaged goods companies, digital companies, and media companies like AOL and Time Warner, Hasbro Toy Company on the packaged goods side, lots of general management, trade marketing, marketing experience. Loved that. And then came to government about 10 years ago, where I had the privilege to serve as the deputy secretary and chief financial officer for Secretary Nee and the Patrick administration. And then I spent about seven years as the head of compliance and DNI at the Port Authority. And then a year ago, next week, I um, took over the Life Science Center where the board and uh, uh, administration has seen fit to uh, have faith in my leadership and uh, the direction that I want to take the life sciences for the Commonwealth. As a longstanding mission-driven leader and a public servant, you've had your hand in many items that have shaped our Commonwealth. What would you consider some of your career highlights? Thank you for that, John. And that's definitely a soft pitch. Uh It it would be the Massport model, hands down. In the seven years that I had the privilege and the pleasure to work with my colleagues at Massport, uh, under the leadership of Tom Glenn and our board, we were able to formulate and then launch and implement what has 
become known as the Massport model. And to break it down simply, it's basically a business development innovation around diversity and equity. It focuses on primarily commercial real estate, but it says that along with equal criteria, diversity, inclusion, and equity would be considered an equitable criteria. And so instead of using the old paradigm of looking at design, financial prowess, the team, et cetera, et cetera, and then having diversity and inclusion either as an afterthought or as a sidebar, what we did was threw that out. We decided we were not going to use a disparity study, but rather we went to a whiteboard, put some folks in a room that I had the pleasure of leading along with my good friend and colleague, Colleen Richards-Powell from then the uh, Convention Center Authority under the leadership of Jim Rooney. And over the series of months, we came up with this notion of why don't we just simply have four criteria? And that four criteria would be viability of the team, which would be weighted at 25 points, potentially. Access to capital. In other words, do we believe that you can actually finance a billion dollar deal? Because some of these deals are half a billion dollars to a billion dollars. What is your program that you're proposing to build on this parcel? And then lastly, diversity and inclusion with an equity component. So there had to be ownership and equity in the deal. That had never been done before anywhere that we could find in the country at local, state, or federal level. It's now being taught as a case study at the Kennedy School and at HBS. And we've socialized it pretty broadly as far as governments in Canada reached out to me afterwards and asked for a kind of a debrief and how did it work, et cetera, et cetera. This administration has adopted it on a case-by-case basis, and so I'm very proud of Governor Baker and his leadership in that regard. And I think that more than anything, when I look back over the Massport model, which was applied to the Omni Hotel deal, uh, which, as you know, is now open and running in the Seaport District, in Parcel A2, which was a follow-on parcel, and now Parcel H, So we've seen it replicated throughout uh, Massport parcels in the Seaport District, showing that it's not a one-off, but rather something that is replicatable. And more than anything, what it proves is that diversity, equity, and inclusion doesn't have to be an afterthought. And it doesn't have to be a nice-to-do thing. And in fact, just the opposite. It's good for business, and it's most certainly good for drawing new partnerships new ideas, and new creativity to a space where people, by and large, work with the same people over and over and over again. Great model. Ken, 26 years in the Navy. Thank you for your service. and Thank you for the privilege. How did that experience influence your leadership style, and how has it impacted your career advancement? Thank you for that, John. And I can tell you, it resonates and influences my thinking and my actions each and every day. The Navy very early teaches you as a midshipman that you have a responsibility to your men. And back then, you know, forgive me because it was men. And I recognize that as we fast forward to the military of today, we have women integrated on ships. But in my day, in the 1980s, 1990s, and early 2000s, our ships uh, and most of our combat platforms across any of our services were, were all men. So I may sound like a little bit of a Neanderthal and a dinosaur when I say men, but that's how I was raised uh, at the time. And quite frankly, my men were my men. 
And so you had a profound sense of responsibility to the people that you had charge of, if you will. And we were taught that you don't lie, you don't cheat, and you don't steal, and you don't tolerate others who do. We were taught that if you're a men ate cold food, you ate cold food. If your men didn't sleep, you didn't sleep. If your men were working, you were working. In other words, you led by example. You set the example. Uh, and you set the bar high. And, and what I found was when you set the bar high, even if I didn't know the answer, that my men would have faith that we collectively could find the answer together. And so those principles that I just outlined are the principles that guide me each and every day throughout my private sector career and now my public sector career. I try to lead by example. I try to have integrity with everything that I do. I try to have my word mean something to people, that when I tell you something, you can trust it, that, uh, that I'm going to lead from the front and not from the rear, and that, and that my folks know that I'm going to fight for them. Those are the principles that make a good naval officer, and I would argue also makes a good private sector executive or a good public sector executive. Absolutely, and it's clear that you do that, Ken, truly. Thank you, Carolyn. So you joined Mass Life Sciences Center as president and CEO in December of 2020, an interesting time indeed. How have the challenges of the pandemic influenced or perhaps shifted how you lead and your approach to long-term planning? Oh my God, that's a great question. I'll tell you, when the announcement came out in October of last year that I was you know, selected uh, to take on this role, the elation lasted about a nanosecond because I immediately started thinking about, oh my God, now how do you transition into a new role and a new organization of which I know no one in an industry that I have very little exposure to and very little background with and do all of this virtually because at the time, you know, COVID was raging and all of us were working from home full time. And so I thought about it uh, over the course of a few weeks and said, you know what? I think we lay out the same playbook that I've used in the past, but recognize that we're going to have to do it virtually, which is lay out a plan for the first 100 days, which is what I've done in each of my executive roles. I always pause and say, I think it's important to lay out a written plan that gets socialized with my board or my boss to make sure that we are completely aligned. And then I have, in effect, a thought document that I can socialize with my team. And so I break down the plan into basically three areas of focus, the team, stakeholders, and then strategy. Let me talk a little bit about the first piece, the team. Back to what the Navy taught me. Rule number one, take care of your crew. Rule number two, refer to rule number one. If you take care of your folks, your folks will take care of you. So that's where I always start. So what do I mean by that? I made it a point to meet each and every member of my team individually, not collectively, individually. And so we had to do it virtually. And, you know, it wasn't optimal. In my, in, in my book, I much prefer face-to-face -face meetings being the Southerner that I am. But we made it work. And this wasn't about just meeting the leadership team or spending time with the board or spending time with my co-chairs, Secretary Keneally or Secretary Heffernan, all of which I did. But it was about meeting every single person on my team and spending at least an hour with them right up front saying, 
who are you? Help me understand where you came from. Help me understand what your career aspirations are. Help me understand how you see your role in the organization. Please tell me what you think is working well. Share with me what you think could be better. And it's amazing the answers you get when you ask that question. And I want to know, are they appropriately resourced? Are they appropriately aligned, et cetera, et cetera. And so I went through that whole exercise. On the stakeholder side, I turned to my leadership team, including the board, and I said, I want to get out and meet as many people in the life sciences ecosystem as I can and as quickly as I can, because I think it's important to start building relationships. The way I think about it as an old Southern boy is simply is this. You don't want to go next door and knock on the door and ask for a cup of sugar when you don't know your neighbors. So let's start off by knowing your neighbors before you go asking for sugar. So I asked for a list of industry partners, leaders in academia, healthcare, non-for-profits, and government, state, local, and federal that I needed to know. We came up with a list of almost 200 stakeholders and influencers, as I call them, uh, including folks in the business community who are not necessarily in the life sciences. And in effect, we've worked that list over the last, what well, next week will make a year that I've been in this role, believe it or not. It's amazing how fast the time has gone. Yeah. But I think Joe and the marketing team would say that I've had over 85 to 90 meetings with people, some virtually, but as many as I could, I tried to make them in person. And now, again, I think it's important to start to build relationships with people up front. Because when the time comes that you need them to help you solve a problem, that's not the time to be knocking on the door introducing yourself. You want to have a relationship with people before you need them. The last piece was strategy. Whenever I think a new leader is coming on board, to me, that's the opportune time to hit the pause button, to hit all stop, to say, you know what, let's do an assessment. Let's take a look at what our mission is and hold that up to the light of day and say, how have we performed against our mission and what metrics are we using? Where do we think we're going and where should we be going? And so I enlisted some colleagues at KPMG and the Boston Consulting Group to help us sort through that. And they helped us come up with what I think is a strong and robust strategy for moving the industry and ecosystem and the center forward. And it basically boils down to this because the strategies just came out. So uh, we previewed it with uh, the leadership of Mass Bio, but quite frankly, we haven't socialized it very broadly. So I'll share some of it with you here. Hey. The pillars are very straightforward. It's we're going to focus and continue to focus on innovation. We're going to focus on biomanufacturing and building out our biomanufacturing capacity. We're going to focus on what I'm going to call regionalization. And then all of that is going to be underpinned. Those three pillars will be underpinned by DE&I and workforce development. So let me go back and talk a little bit about innovation. What I mean by innovation is this. If you dial back, say, 10 years ago and look at what were the cutting edge therapies, modalities, et cetera, in the life science space, there was this notion around mRNA. Nobody had heard of it. Yeah. Nobody had heard of it. The VCs did not invest in it. The Life Science Center did. And oh, by the way, that company is Moderna. Mm -hmm. And that's the company that came to the rescue of mankind a year ago. Now think about that. Think about that. That's what I'm talking about in innovation. What's the next mRNA that we, 
the center should be thinking about supporting where the VCs are not so that when the next crisis comes, we're prepared again to save mankind. Literally, that's not hyperbole. That's what those vaccines are doing. When I talk about biomanufacturing, I'm sitting in literally the epicenter of our ecosystem here in Kendall Square. I'm at Lab Central talking to you guys today, looking out the window at this bustling, beautiful environment that we've created over the last 13, 14, 15 years. And so that is primarily R&D focused. In other words, they come up with the new therapies and drugs, et cetera, but we don't necessarily make them here in the Commonwealth. Oftentimes, they're made in our competitors' environment, be that Pennsylvania, Maryland, North Carolina, or Texas even. And so what I want us to do is to say, is there an opportunity for us to build stronger relationships with our industry partners such that we start to focus on building out more of our large molecule drugs here in Massachusetts in biomanufacturing. Now, why is that important? Because the biomanufacturing drugs and capability I'm talking about doesn't require the technicians working in those plants to have advanced degrees. So when you think about the workforce development and DNI portion of the strategy, I'm looking at folks who are out of work from the gig economy, people who want to be retrained, people who want to be upskilled and reskilled that we can bring into the life sciences sector who are not going to be researchers, who are not going to be scientists, and they don't have to be. But yet we would bring them into solidly, upwardly mobile careers in the life sciences where your starting salary is $50,000, $60,000, $70,000 a year with benefits and college education attached to it. That to me is an incredible thing for us to shoot for. In fact, I think about it as my moonshot, my mass port model, if you will, in the life science space, if we can pull it off. The other piece of it though is, if we're able to bring more biomanufacturing to the Commonwealth, where do you place it? Where do you put the footprint of those plants? Well, clearly in the Boston, Cambridge area, that probably doesn't make a lot of sense in terms of the cost of living, in the terms of congestion, and in the terms, quite frankly, of the cost of land. But if we spread that out to our gateway cities like a Lawrence or Lowell or Springfield or Worcester, or even as far as Pittsfield or Lee, now we have more access to land, we have access to labor, and oh, by the way, the labor force that I just mentioned would be that labor force. So it all ties together nicely. So this is the strategy that we are going to pursue over the next two years of my tenure. It is going to be focused on driving DE&I and what I'm calling regionalization of the life sciences. Let's spread it out across the state and let's bring more people into the life sciences sector who look like me. And for those people who can't see me, I'm a black man. It's an outstanding plan. Thank you for giving us a sneak peek of that. Tremendous. Yeah, as you know, life science is at the core of this region's growth, and you're in the center of it, and I love hearing the plan. As you've worked this past year, what are some of the key lessons and insights that you've discovered in heading this organization and working with this network of talented and and innovative individuals? Oh, man, I've learned so much, John. I came to this job with zero life science background. I mean, look, I, I would hold up my executive and leadership credentials against anybody. As I mentioned earlier, you know, having pursued successfully 
a career in the military, the private sector, and the public sector, all at the executive level. There aren't many folks I know who've done that. So frankly, I'm proud of my background, and I think that I'm a pretty accomplished executive. But I came to this job, as I did at the Port Authority, with zero experience in the area that I was asked to lead. And so I think it's important when you undertake a role like this that you listen more than you talk. And and so I've spent as much as I could over the last year doing what I heard uh, Steve Grossman say one day. I was at a um, uh, a Gold Star luncheon at Hanscom Air Force Base with Secretary Nee. And at the time, uh, the treasurer was Steve Grossman and Steve was there. And he opened up his talk with those mothers. And I'll never forget it by saying that when he was a little boy, his dad told him, Steve, you've got two eyes, two ears, and one mouth. Use them in proportion. I've never forgotten that. I have never, I thought that was spot on. I loved it. And so what I've tried to do over the last year is listen more than I talk. I have gotten out as much as I can to talk to thought leaders in this space, to meet as many of my industry partners as I could in this space, to meet as many of my partners on Beacon Hill and in the administration and even in the federal government and local governments. I've gone out to Pittsfield and Lee. I've gone out to Lowell, uh, Bedford, Dartmouth, Amherst, you name it. I am out and about as much as I can. And those are what I'm calling listening tools. I want to hear what people think. I want to know what's working. And I want to hear what we need to lean in. So to your point, what I did hear very early on, which is what the strategy has in effect validated, is that we have a real serious issue around talent acquisition. And when I mean talent acquisition, I'm not just talking about the advanced uh, degrees and PhDs and researchers and scientists. We know that there's a challenge there and as always has been. But I'm talking about at the worker bee level when we go back to the manufacturing capacity that we have in the state. And so what became clear to me is that we've got to focus very seriously on meeting the talent needs. We've got to figure out what's working with regards to our access pipelines in terms of training. And then how do we scale that up in a robust way, in a very rational way? And I would argue in a harmonized way because we don't want to be doing this in a disparate, like everybody's out doing their own thing. And so that's part of what I heard. What I like about this sector, this ecosystem, this industry that I've been blessed to lead uh, from the public sector is that not only am I working with really smart people, and believe me, in most rooms I'm in, they're, they're talking science and I'm struggling to hang on when they get down into the weeds, but I'm amazed by a couple of things. One, the amount of incredible innovation and ingenuity that's in the pipeline. I have been in companies where people are working on curing deathness. I have been in companies where they are talking about tailoring your particular therapy for your cancer specifically to you, taking your blood, re-engineering it, putting it back in you, and in effect, providing your treatment that way. And oh, by the way, I'm a twice cancer survivor. So I went through six months of chemotherapy when I had uh, lymphoma. I went through 25 rounds of radiation and surgery to remove a sarcoma just a couple of years ago. And what those therapies will do is make that obsolete. No patient would ever go through what I went through either time. That stuff to me, man, is just mind blowing. And I could go on and on. When I'm, when I'm talking to these researchers, 
the focus on patient outcomes, on providing these cutting edge therapies and even cures is just, it's astounding, it's breathtaking. It's absolutely breathtaking. I love that part of my job. Mm. The other part of my job is these folks may be brilliant and smart, but they're some of the kindest, nicest, most generous people I've ever met. I kid you not. And so we have an incredible ecosystem here in this state. And it's only going to get bigger and it's only going to get better because we believe in collaboration and we believe in the spirit of teamwork here in Massachusetts. And it's my job to drive that. Well, we're grateful for that and uh, grateful for your health as well. You've been uh, through some amazing things that truly and obviously uh, continue to inform your work. So we appreciate that. You know, Ken, you've worked with many impressive leaders throughout your career in many different types of organizations. What's some of the best advice that you've been given? That's a great question. <laughs> so I remember when I was a young ensign and, and an ensign in the Navy is the same as a second lieutenant in the Army, Air Force and Marines. In other words, you're an 01. I retired as an 06, some 20 some odd years later. So that, that's the bottom rung, right? <laughs> you're walking around like right out of college or right out of the Naval Academy. And frankly, you don't know nothing. You know, you know what they taught you, but you really don't know anything. And people treat you with respect, but deep down inside, they know and you know that you really don't know anything. And I had a mentor. He was uh, the senior watch officer on my submarine and the navigator. His name was Matt Hayball. And, and Matt, I remember, <laughs> once pulled me to the side and, and he, he pointed out something to me, which was I had this thing that was going on between me and my captain, who shall go unnamed. In the Navy, you have formal meals, breakfast, lunch, and dinner. You literally, the captain sits at the front of the table, the XO sits to his right, engineering officer sits to his left, and then you go down the table based on seniority. So being the youngest and newest kid on the block, I'm all the way at the back of the table. And so our captain had this, had this habit of saying things that I thought were incredibly stupid and annoying and silly. <laughs> And I had this annoying habit of correcting him in front of everybody else. Oh, boy. (laughs) (laughs) And after doing that for, you know, a number of weeks, and bear in mind now, we're underway on a nuclear deterrent patrol, which is 72 days underwater. Wow. 24-7, you're living with (laughs) us. And so I would piss him off and embarrass him. And then he would spend the next two or three days, as you might imagine, ripping into me and my division. And Matt Hayball pulled me to the side one day and said something to me. He said, you know what? He does say stupid things and we all let it fly. You take offense and you take him on and then you embarrass him and make him look stupid. Then he spends the next week taking it out on your men, not just you, your men. So you might want to think about that. I never forgot that. What it taught me was sometimes it's not so important to be right. It's great advice. Great advice. Just not that important to be right. Yeah. Let it slide. That was the lesson. Pick your battles. Every battle is not important. Yeah. You don't always have to be right. You don't have to educate every idiot as long as they cause you no harm. <laughs> there is a rule. As long as they cause you no harm. So that True. was a very valuable lesson to me as a young naval officer. So Ken, turning that around, what's your best advice to business leaders, both perhaps the C-suite and maybe that next generation? I would say that one of the biggest disappointments I've had over the course of my private sector 
and public sector career, not military, because the military leans in and teaching you to not just be a manager, but to be a leader. And those are two different things. I don't think we spend enough time in the private sector and the public sector training our managers to be leaders. So I would say to folks, absent that training, figure out ways to go get it. Figure out ways to go get it. Don't just buy into the Kool-Aid that you're drinking when everybody's telling you you're great and breaking your arm, patting yourself on the back as you keep getting promoted. Hmm. Instead, say, you know what? I recognize that I might be a great accountant or a great engineer or a great uh, marketing person, but I need to understand how do I motivate people? How do I truly lead people? And how do you lead with, I, with the notion that I call be a servant leader? In other words, put your people first. Put your organization first. It isn't about your hubris, your ego, your title, how much money you make, how many people you manage, how big your office is. It's about what's your mission? Are you doing what I call the most good for the most people? And am I taking care of my crew? That's what I think about each and every day when I get up. And that's what I try to do each and every day when I go to work. Great lessons, Ken. As we close, we uh, try to go through some rapid fire questions to help our listeners get to know our guests a little bit better. Are you ready for them? Okay. <laughs> All right, here we go. When you're on a trip down memory lane with old friends, what are you talking about? Wow. You know, probably we talk, it depends, because I've got friends in the Navy and I've got friends from college. So, you know, if it's college mates, it's going to be talking about our time at Southern, fraternity life, being in the band. If you know anything about HBCUs, bands are a big deal. And I was in the band. And so, you know, I have very strong relationships to this day based on that. If it's my shipmates, then obviously, as we say in the Navy, then we're just, you know, lying and, uh, and, and telling sea stories. Uh, you know, the ocean waves were 10 times higher than they were. And, you know, our heroism was, you know, five times more gallant than it was with age. But in all seriousness, I adore the folks that I've had the privilege and the pleasure to work with. And um, and anytime I can spend time with friends, I really, really value that time. What's a social cause that you're passionate about? Veterans and aid to veterans. All five of my brothers are veterans. As I said, my older sister was a veteran and my dad's a veteran. Three of them are 100% disabled. I serve on the uh, board of the soldiers' home. And out of the eight or nine boards that I serve on, that's one that I like, I'm most proud of. Because I just think that anything I can do to better the life of my fellow veterans, particularly those that have been injured or harmed as a result of their service, then I think as a nation, we have no higher debt than that. Where's your favorite spot in Boston or the region? Wow. Favorite spot in Boston. I'm still a sailor at heart. I love the ocean. I grew up in Monroe, Louisiana, which is predominantly landlocked. I mean, we have a bio, uh, which is bio de seared, and we got the Washita River, but, you know, it's a long way from the Atlantic Ocean or the Pacific Ocean. But I grew up with this dream of sailing the oceans, which is why I wanted to be in the Navy like my dad. And to this day, I can't picture a better way to spend my time on a beautiful day than to be out on the Boston Harbor on a sailboat, just doing my thing. I'm looking out your window, John, and I'm so jealous. Yeah, it's I, a great I, view. I love the ocean. I love the smell of the ocean. I love the sea. 
I love being out on the water. I love the ocean. And what makes you laugh? Oh, you know what? I am probably the world's worst comedian. I can't carry a joke in a bucket. But I love people that are funny. And so I love, you know, Richard Pryor and Dave Chappelle and, and, and people like that, that like have this incredible talent to be able to get up in front of people with just a microphone and tell these incredible stories that keep you hanging on, hanging on. And then at the very end, there's like something like hilariously funny. I just think that that's like God's gift to the world. And finally, can a wish for the future. Wow, that's a tough one. We are living in such turbulent times between struggling to come out of a pandemic, the likes that we've not seen in a century, and quite frankly, the politics of America right now really concern me. I had a conversation with a close friend of mine just this morning talking about the parallels between Nazi Germany in the 20s and the 30s and some of those parallels that I see echoing here in America, uh, which I thought I'd never see quite frankly. And it's frightening, very frightening to me. I said to him, and I'll tell you exactly what I said to him. I said, nobody took Hitler serious until we could vote. They thought he was a joke. They thought he was a joke and they thought they could control him. And so I say that to say this, there are certain elements in our politics right now. We had an insurrection for Christ's sakes in the United States of America, an insurrection. There is a picture of a man walking through the Capitol building with a Confederate flag. Robert E. Lee couldn't pull that off in four years of the bloodiest conflict in the history of the United States. So I'm very concerned. I'm very concerned about our politics. I'm very concerned about us getting out of a pandemic of which some people, large percentage of people won't get vaccinated. So my hope is that through the power of persuasion, the power of leadership, the power of this administration in Massachusetts, under Governor Baker, Karen Polito, President Biden, that we can start to steer the nation in a different direction. Because by God, I think the ship is headed towards the shoals and the rocks. And I thought I'd never see that. Not in my lifetime. And that wraps up another episode. Thank you so much for joining us and for sharing your insights. This is C-Speak, the language of executives. Our guest today was Ken Turner, President and CEO of Massachusetts Life Sciences Center. Ken, thanks so much. Thank you guys for the privilege. This is absolute pleasure. Wonderful to see you and I look forward to seeing you again soon in person. Absolutely. I, I look forward to it. You've been listening to PNC C-Speak, the language of executives. This podcast and other engaging episodes can be found at bizjournals.com slash Boston. Search PNC. Subscribe at the Boston Business Journal, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast platform. Come back soon and join us for another PNC C-Speed.